world-class media, this is World Class. I'm your host, Travis Chappell. Here on World Class, we combine value, entertainment, and behind-the-scenes insights to bring you the most comprehensive view of what it takes to become world-class in what you do. Listen in every week as I have conversations with top business leaders, journalists, hostage negotiators, authors, comedians, producers, you name it. If they're the best at what they do, I'll have a chat with them. I believe that the best way to become world-class is to learn from those who already are. And that's exactly what we do here on the show. You'll learn the skills that you need to master, the mindset that you need to adopt, the work you need to put in, all from people who have walked the road before you. So get ready to learn, be motivated, and most importantly, have a good time because you're listening to World Class. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I can't wait for you all to listen to this episode. It is with Bedros Koulian. I mean, this is a true rags to riches story. This guy was quite literally dumpster diving after his family escaped a communist country and moved to the States. He was overweight. He had a hard time speaking the language. He was made fun of. And now he owns one of the fastest growing gym franchises in the world called Fit Body Bootcamp. They have over 650 locations now worldwide, and he's really just an all-around nice guy. I had a blast chatting with him, and I know you'll have a blast listening. We talk about how kids at school called him by the name of a certain member of the Munsters because he wore his shirt to school with that character on it when he first started going there. We talk about how doing your inner work is where the real magic happens, and of course, we talk about his best advice on networking. This is a great one, jam-packed full of awesome content. But really quickly, if you're listening to this right now, be sure to screenshot this episode and post it to your Instagram story and tag Bedros and me so we can holla back at you. I love to connect with people, so I'll be replying to each and every one of your messages over there. And now let's get into my conversation with Bedros Koulian. Bedros, welcome to the show, man. Super, super stoked to uh, to be here with you. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me, Travis. Of course, of course. I want to get into some stuff that you don't normally talk about, but just for the sake of everybody listening, let's go ahead and jump back in the story and build some context here. Sure. Really, really unique, interesting uh, rags to riches story, if you want to call it that, from the whole immigrant family coming into the, the, the United States. Um, can you walk us through that whole story, um, especially talk about the resourcefulness um, that your dad used uh, to be able to save up money, to be able to even have the trip to come home right. to the States? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I like to call myself the immigrant edge and the American dream. Like I really do feel like the Cinderella man, like a modern day Cinderella man. And the reason is, um, my dad was a member of the communist party in the Soviet union in the seventies. We lived in a country called Armenia that was occupied by the Soviet union. And my dad was a tailor. And of course everybody worked for the government there. And as much as my dad didn't want to be a member of the Communist Party, he had no choice. Otherwise, you're shipped off to Siberia and never to be seen again by your family. And so, but he was clever, man. He was clever. He knew that he liked the American way. In fact, I remember him wearing Ray-Bans and Jordache jeans. And he had like uh, Adidas shoes. Like he was very Americanized in a communist country, which was frowned upon. Now, add to that. In 1981, my brother was about to ship off, because he's older than me, he was about to ship off to war to fight um, in the Red Army, in the Soviet Army, against Afghanistan back then. So my dad's like, holy hell, I gotta save up money and get out of this country and into America, because I love the American way, I love their, from their clothing, to their lifestyle, to their freedom. And so being a tailor, he had figured out that, you know, his job was to make suits. And you take all this material and you use so much material to make one suit, a three-piece suit. 
Well, he figured out if he put the pattern close together on these on the material, for like every 10 suits that he makes, he would have enough material left over that should have been scrap that he can then take home and make a suit and sell it on the black market. This is how he raised over three year period, 25,000 rubles to then bribe the Soviet government to let us escape into Italy, from Italy into the United States. Yeah. So you talk about someone being an entrepreneur okay. and someone being resourceful. Talk about a side hustle. A side hustle, <laughs> like the modern day side hustle. Right. Like, that, like yeah. my dad did it in 1980, yeah. 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 yeah, this is I love I love everything you talk about as far as resourcefulness goes because there there's an abundance of a lot of things in our culture and one of them is excuses mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's so interesting to talk to people that have this excuse of you know because I, I I think that moving around and putting your getting yourself out of a situation that you're currently in I in my personal life has led to greater success always growth. Sure. If I'm doing something uncomfortable, there's always a big period of growth that happens right after I do something that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. And so it's interesting when I talk to people that aren't willing to move, you know, even physically away from the place that they grew up. And I'm just like, hey, you should, you should, they ask me for my advice. I'm like, hey, you should move. You should get out of there. Like go somewhere else for a little bit. Oh, well, you know, I can't because of this, 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 and this. If anybody had any reason and any excuse to stay in a certain spot, it was your dad in a communist country where like the penalty isn't like, well, my friends might laugh at me. The penalty is like, no, like you, you could get put to death. death. Yeah. So like, so can you talk about why that's so important to grasp and, 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 and how that played into you being able to turn that story into a success story? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you why it's so important to grasp that whole concept, right? Because when, once you know there's better opportunity for you, I think it's a human, you have this built-in curiosity to explore. We have it today. The problem is not enough people are willing to take the risk to go explore those opportunities. And so they stay complacent in mediocrity. Well, my dad was like, hey, look, you know, I've heard the United States has this, that, and the other, and freedom and opportunities and freedom of speech, and you can earn as much money as you want. You don't have to, you know, operate silently and be quiet against the government, you can voice your opinion. And he liked that idea. Like he was a very forward thinking communist. Hmm. And so to him, it was worth taking the risk. I mean, look how big the risk was today. Right. Right, exactly. If someone's watching this, right, or listening to this and they're like, well, you know, I think there might be an opportunity in me being an entrepreneur or building a, a, a side hustle, but the risk is maybe getting laughed at, the risk is maybe losing a few thousand dollars or maybe even losing some time. My dad's risk was potentially losing his life, yeah. right? And then, of course, my brother, sister, anyone uh, older, because I was six years old, probably get imprisoned, and I'd probably end up in an orphanage. Mm. Like, that was the risk he was willing to take for the opportunity that he saw. And so, having seen that risk that he took when I came to this country, and my dad's like, hey, man, look, you can become anything you want, you can do anything you want, you can make as much money as you want. The only thing that you have to do is serve the people of this country. Like you have to be in service of people, right? That was the biggest thing he told me. He was a master networker. He, the reason we were able to escape is he knew all the KGB agents in our community. He knew people in the consult. Mm -hmm. He was, my dad had the gift of gab and he knew how to win people over. Yeah. And he was so good at networking that he had made the right connections and he knew who to bribe. Because wow. you show up with 25,000 rubles and you offer it to the wrong person, 
you're you screwed again. Right, right. So there's many ways to get put to death, right, in the, in the, in the Soviet government. And, and so because of that, when I saw that he, you know, he was willing to take those risks when he saw opportunity, and he told me that, hey, you can become anything you want as long as you are in service of people and, and networking and connecting and add, adding value to their lives. The example he gave was come with a giving hand. Mm. And I remember, you know, one of the lessons he taught me was every morning we wake up and you have one of two shirts you can put on. One shirt says, what are you going to do for me today? The other says, how can I serve you today? Or what can I do for you today? Right? And he was that guy who puts on the shirt every morning and says, what can I do for you? Yeah. And because of that, people want to help him. And so that's how we made our freedom, escaped to our freedom. And that's how I've been able to, I've literally been able to grow in this country as an entrepreneur, as a thought leader, whatever that means, now as an upcoming author, simply because I've stood on the shoulders of giants that I've reached out and added value to and helped. Yeah. And they've been kind enough to help me and then introduce me to people bigger than me that I had yeah. no access to. You know, I always know it's going to be a good conversation when at the very beginning, when I didn't even really ask about networking, we're already talking about networking sure. and the value. Because that's, that's, really the, that's really the word, right, is value. Yeah. Um, and, and how valuable that activity is, but also adding value to other people. Um, and not expecting anything in return, right? But that's a conversation we're gonna definitely get into. Um, but I do wanna kind of jump back into the story here. <clears throat> so come over to the States, you're six years old. Yeah. Um, and, and then you, you, come, you come over your first month, you don't have any rent money, you're living with a friend that says, hey, you have 30 days, and then you're gonna be out on your own. So yeah. like, you better save up some money. So your dad goes and gets like four jobs, your mm -hmm. brother, your sister, everybody's working and still no money for food. So what does your dad have you do? Yeah, so uh, the running joke in the family was, and, and this is another great lesson, no matter what hardships you're going through in life, like keep your humor about you, you know? Like, the running joke in the family was that me, the six-year-old, I was a breadwinner. Even though everyone had multiple jobs. My dad was, uh, the, he delivered newspapers at two in the morning and he, he was pumping gas at a gas station and then he was a busboy at a pizzeria. My brother was a busboy at the same pizzeria during the day. My sister had a couple of jobs. And, but all that money was to get out of this guy's apartment. Like the guy let us stay in his apartment for one month and after that you're on your own. So yeah. we didn't have money, we didn't speak the language, we didn't understand the culture. And so food, uh, well I was the breadwinner because my dad had discovered that behind every grocery store in America is a giant dumpster. And they throw away food by law that they can't sell because it's expired. Mm -hmm. Well, just because milk is expired or eggs are expired, doesn't always mean they've gone bad or cereal that is expired, right? And so my dad would lift me up into these dumpsters and for me it was a scavenger hunt and I'd pull out bread and milk and cheese and cereal and lettuce that was rotten, but my mom would peel away enough of the leaves where there would be a little fresh lettuce head under there and we would eat that. So really goes back to being resourceful when you don't have the financial resources to walk into a grocery store and shop and buy the goods that you need, well, get resourceful. Is there a dumpster you can dive into, get the food that you need to survive? Right. And that's what we did. And so my whole life has always been about, because look, as an entrepreneur, uh, you know this, you are going to deal with hardships and risks and sometimes you're going to lose money and maybe even reputation mm -hmm. by accident or by a bad decision whatever and if you don't have your humor about you and if you are not a resourceful person and if you're not resilient in other words falling down and willing to get up a hundred times you will fail so those three things have been like the core of 
what I've always carried with me throughout my entrepreneurial career is humor, resourcefulness, and resiliency, yeah. and they've served me well. And one thing, one thing I really want to point out there um, and, and emphasize is that during this time when you were literally dumpster diving for food for the family, do you have memories of looking back on that and being like, oh man, we had it so horrible and life was just so bad and I just hated it and I just wanted to get out of that. Did you have any memories of that? No, I can't say I had any memories of that being bad because to me, um, my dad, I think, also kind of framed it as a like, hey, look, see what, what you can find in that yeah, corner, right? Hunt, yeah. It was a scavenger hunt. You know, he was like, again, if my mom and dad's demeanor was, oh, poor us, right. we're starving, we're foreigners, this country's not good for us, my attitude would have been the same. So they helped frame my attitude. That's what I do appreciate that I was six years old. However mom and dad felt is how I felt. Hmm. Uh, so I don't have anything like that. The only negative connotation that I had was uh, being laughed at because I was a foreigner, being yelled at and said, go back to your own country, you don't speak the language. Like I grew up with a chip on my shoulder and a lot of rage and anger in my teens and 20s because of the fact that I was laughed at, but not from necessarily dumpster diving. It was just right, right. kids in school who were bullies are even bigger bullies to the foreigner especially when you keep moving around. So I've gone to three elementary schools, two junior highs, two high schools. You gotta imagine, like, you're the new student. Right. You're already different and weird with an accent. You're getting picked on, man. Yeah, yeah. yes, talk to us about Herman. <laughs> man, you've done your research, yeah. Oh, that left a lot of scars. All right, so yeah, um, you're 25, right? Yes, sir. Okay, so you're 25. There, there used to be a show it, well before your time called The Munsters. I, I, I watched it. Yeah. Did you? Okay. When I was a kid, yeah. Okay, I thought maybe you watched it as a research for this, but okay. <laughs> um, so, so the Munsters, it was a black and white TV show, and it was like Herman Munster, and he was like uh, Frankenstein, mm -hmm. right? And then it's an odd family. And of course, one of the ways that we found clothes and furniture was, again, through dumpsters. Dumpsters served us well, man. Like, you'd be surprised what, what America throws away. Yeah. Like, it's trash, another man's treasure. Yes. Really rang true for you guys. Holy yeah. Dude, a mattress to sleep on. Uh, furniture, a television, our first television, which worked fine, I still don't know why it was thrown away, was found in a dumpster. But so was the, the clothing we wore. And so there was this, it was a green sweatshirt that fit very tight on me because I was a chubby little kid. And um, I'm sure this thing was just, you know, a couple sizes too small. And it had Herman Munster on there. And it said, you know, Herman Munster, right? <laughs> So what a great shirt, though. <laughs> dude, yeah, it, it was a great show, and it was because of that shirt that we found that I, was, I started watching the show. But kids in school started calling; they didn't know how to say Bedros, and it was a new school. And they looked at my shirt. They go, "Hey, your name is Herman." I was, yeah, like, sure, sure. <laughs> and there was a Salk School in Anaheim, California. Salk Salk Seahawks. That was our little uh, thing. Salk School. That the entire three years I went there, I was known as Herman, and. That's does that leave a scar? Yeah. Does that does that create some anger? Yeah. But man, I wouldn't trade it out for anything because some of the scars that it left has made me so much tougher yeah. to deal with the shit that I have to deal with as an entrepreneur. Yeah, you, you used a you used a phrase at the very beginning of this that you called the immigrant edge. Is that applicable to what you were just talking about? Yeah, that, that's that's definitely one of the edges that I have as an immigrant is um, the ability to take a lot more mm -hmm. shit mm -hmm. and be resilient because of it. Like when the economy crashed in 2008, yeah. I was like, man, the economy's still fine. Right. Like, 
11% unemployment. I get it, that's high for this country. But right now in Greece, in Athens, Greece, unemployment is 29%. Wow. 20, almost a third of the people are unemployed, right? Now that's an economic crash, right? right? right. And, and it's actually on the upswing now, it's improving. And so 11% unemployment for me in 2008 was nothing. The economy crashed. That's when I created Fit Body Bootcamp, my franchise, which is now a global franchise. To me, the economy crashed, good. Less people are actually marketing on Facebook, which means mm -hmm. ads are gonna be cheaper for me. So I, another immigrant edge mentality, right? Resourcefulness and the ability to be resilient in a time when things aren't necessarily working in everyone's Define favor. The, the silver lining, the opportunity through the bleakness. Yes, yeah. 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 Tony yeah. Robbins has a really good saying. Um, Last November, I had the good fortune to speak on stage with Tony Robbins. He spoke, and I'm getting mic'd up in the back of the ballroom. I'm listening to him speak, and he's like, you know, in his big bellowing Tony Robbins voice, he yeah. goes, uh, you know, many entrepreneurs, they all thrive when it's spring and summer, when the economy's good and unemployment is low and competition is few. He goes, but me... I was born for the winter, right? I was like, oh shit, that's absolutely, <laughs> that's me. That's it, that's it, that's yeah. that's resiliency. And I always talk yeah. about, you know, you can be a weed or you can be an orchid. The orchid is fragile and frail, the weed is resilient and strong and it'll die but it'll come back angrier, yeah. right? More resilient. And and so you gotta be born for the winter and that's, that's one of the biggest edges that I believe immigrants have. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second because that's something I feel that my generation, millennial generation, isn't quite as prepared for. Um, so my whole working career, you know, I, the crash happened when I was like 14, 15. Yeah. You know, I still lived with mom and dad. Like I was going to school. It, it obviously affected me, but just nowhere near what it would affect me if I were an adult working, paying bills, having a mortgage, sure. stuff like that. So I feel there's a lot of people my age that are living in this blissful economy where all we've known is the uptick, all we've known is the upswing. Um, can you talk about how to prepare yourself for a correction that's gonna be coming in the future? Because it obviously is coming, it is like 100% yeah. guaranteed. We don't really know when or how severe, but it's for sure coming. So what are some ways that me, as somebody who's never gone through that, can like look forward to the future and be like, okay, I got this and this and this, I got my ducks in a row and I'm prepared to weather the winter and actually thrive during that time and not just survive? Good question, very good question. And, and in fact, in uh, Tony Robbins' most recent book, Unshakable, I think he interviewed like 18 economists, mm -hmm. like some of the world's brightest economists who said like, it is coming again. Mm -hmm. And historically, when you look at it from the Great Depression it's on, no like, question. Yeah, it's no it's, question that yeah. it's coming, it's just when, and like we're getting close to it to come. So it's not, uh, preparation, People are thinking like, so is there a certain amount of money I should have prepared in the bank setting aside so that I can you know, survive off that? No, preparation is all mental. Hmm. The preparation for the next economic downturn is all mental because you have to go, you have to be willing to believe that the future is gonna be bright again. That means optimism, hmm. right? Everybody turns negative, everybody turns pessimist when the economy crashes because the talking heads on TV, the news tell us unemployment is up, homes are foreclosed, Jobs the are lost. The apocalypse is happening. The apocalypse. Yeah, you better have your food apocalypse. storage. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Gallons yeah, of water. Yeah, right, right. Get, get your ready. guns. <laughs> when in reality, we know historically that the turnaround is going to happen. So what do people do when the economy crashes? They buy homes. They buy land. They buy real estate, right? They invest. They gobble up their competition. Why? Because they know there's going to be a correction. Historically, we've seen that. But when everyone's running around like the chicken with his head cut off and the sky is falling, if you get sucked into that pessimism, you start thinking that this is it, it's over. I have to now live at a lower standard of life. Yeah. I go into the mindset of, you know what? 
this is where my competition begins to contract, as in save their money, not spend more. Mm -hmm. And so this is my chance to kill them, right? right? You right. just have to go into that mindset of, I'm gonna outmarket them, it's gonna be cheaper to market, I'm gonna try and buy them out, I'm gonna try and take their business from them and suffocate them to death. Right. And so one, you have to be of this optimistic mindset that the economy will turn, so I better go and outmarket and grow while I can. Number two, is my competition starting to contract? If so, what can I do to help them die faster? Hmm. You just have to do that as an entrepreneur. Yeah. And number three is, who else can I recruit? Because all of a sudden people start losing jobs. Yeah, yeah. So now you can recruit some of the best talent for pennies on the dollar, which is what I did. I got some of the best talent from videographers at the time to, to you know uh, CFOs for my company yeah. for pennies yeah. on the dollar because they were out of jobs and they were working for me for wholesale prices. Right, right. The big, the biggest concept, um, the 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 best way that I that I heard I heard you actually say it this way on a different interview. And I'm wondering if you, if you can expound on this concept a little bit. Is that the money is not disappearing? Yes. It's literally just changing hands. That's it. Right. So can you kind of talk yeah. about like how to make sure that you're the on the right end of that equation? Yes. So when an economy crashes, right? People think that the money went away. The money never goes away. The money just changes hands. It goes from the people who are working and have jobs, uh, who maybe overextended themselves, thinking that you know they can leverage their right. the equity in their house or whatever, and all of a sudden they, they bought lost. the Audi on overtime. Yes, pay. yeah, exactly, exactly. They they buy the boat, they buy the jet skis, mm -hmm. all the things that they should be renting and not buying, they did right. And so all of a sudden the money goes away from them, but it goes towards the people who repossess that stuff and sell it. It goes to the people who repossess their house and sell it or rent it for cash flow. And so when you think about this, money doesn't go away, it's just exchange hands. My job as an entrepreneur is to go, all right, whose hands did the money go to? Mm -hmm. Find them and then make them the offer to buy my franchise. Mm -hmm. Which is why when the economy crashed, the very next year in 2009, I started making sales videos for Fit Body Bootcamp, the franchise. And in fact, my videographer at the time stopped me and he goes, hey, I appreciate that you've given me a job and that we're making these videos for this future franchise that you're creating. Yeah. Who's gonna buy a franchise for $25,000 considering the unemployment rate and the economy crashed? And his name is Rob and I said, Rob, the economy has crashed, but the money hasn't gone away. It's just exchanged hands and I need to figure out who's got the money and sell them my franchise. Yeah. And that's exactly what I did. And Gary Vaynerchuk built his business, VaynerMedia, in the peak of the economic crash. Yeah. So many businesses were built during the time of the economic crash while everyone else was contracting. That's so crazy. So now you've you've built up this insane franchise, FitBody Bootcamp. You have over 650 yeah. locations now. Uh, worldwide, not just nationwide. Correct. International. And now your goal is to get up to 2,500. Why 2,500? Why not go more than that? Good question. If we went more than that, again, I always like to look at history, right? And a track record. You look at CrossFit, and I think CrossFit is a great workout program, but I think it's a horrible business model. Because it's a horrible business model because CrossFit HQ doesn't support their affiliates. Hmm. Well, and we know that the CrossFit model, that they've got over 7,000 locations, and they're now losing more locations and gaining. Why? they're oversaturated. Same with curves. So I look at kind of businesses in my space mm -hmm. who went past the 5,000 mark and how they end up imploding on themselves. Now to me, my goal is to, I, I always do my goal with the outcome in mind. I'm a personal trainer at heart. I was a fat kid, fitness changed my life in high school, and all I wanted to do was help more people through fitness. And so like to be able to wake up in the mornings and go, man, we help people 
like five million people a day. I always thought that would be a cool number. Like five million people a day is what we what, who we train, yeah. right? And so you reverse engineer that. We need 2,500 Fit Body Bootcamp locations at about 500 members each to hit that number because each of those members are going to touch two or three people in their family, right? Statistically in my industry, like when you get fit, you start impacting you know, your girlfriend or your wife and right. the kids, etc. And so to me, to hit five million people with fitness every single day, I need 2,500 locations, each with 500 clients. And so why not have 2,500 locations instead of letting my greed glands secrete mm -hmm. and opening up more, but now have placing them next to each other where they have to now fight and be adversarial instead of right. friends. Right. And now also you're, ex you're, you're putting out a way different level of energy at that point, right? Yeah. And it comes, it comes to a point where it's just like, hey, look, this is, this, this level is past what I even want to happen for myself. Yeah. Like I'm not willing to give up family time, my schedule currently, just to get to 10,000 locations yeah. because that's what culture wants me to like do next. At the end of the day, why do we all have jobs or businesses? It's, if we're lucky, we're gonna spend 100 years on this planet. Mm -hmm. And if we're lucky, it's gonna be 100 healthy years where we're walking and active and of sound mind. Right. I don't want to spend the rest of my life working, right? Or most of my life working. Right. I want to work and serve, but I want to be able to enjoy my family, give them experiences and peace of mind and et cetera. And so for me to do that, I realized, you know, maybe 2,500 locations is the spot. That doesn't mean I then give up and retire. Mm -hmm. I own equity in several other franchises. Mm -hmm. We're going to grow each of those, right. some to 5,000 locations because the market can, can sustain it. Others to only 1,000 locations because that's the model for that industry. But the bottom line is I'll keep working, mm -hmm. but where my industry is concerned, 2,500 locations is what I'm shooting for. Perfect, perfect. So one thing that I find really fascinating about <clears throat> your whole brand is, um, I mean, your book's right here, Man Up. Um, this is actually, when this episode releases, this will be coming out tomorrow, so definitely go grab a copy of that. Um, you, you have a book called Man Up. You talk a lot about facing struggle head on. You talk a lot about running into pain. Um, and that's all stuff that I, I personally am kind of always been on board with. I'm more that whole like man up mentality. Um, but then I also find this other segment of society that talks a lot about doing the inner work and working on yourself on the inside. And I feel like they're usually opposing forces, right? Like the, yeah. there's this side of, of men that are like, you know, like, no, like, you you know, when, when you say man up, they get all offended. And it's like, oh, I just want to be my, myself or whatever. And right. blah, 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 whatever, right. whatever they say. Right. Right. But then you have this other segment that's like, man up. Don't ever talk about your feelings. Like, don't be vulnerable. Like, that's not what a man does. You know. Yeah. And so I find really fascinating. Like, I, I obviously prepared a lot for this and listened to a lot of different interviews. One of the more fascinating ones I listened to was one with Aubrey Marcus, um, where you talk a lot about some of the inner work that you've done yeah. um, to allow yourself to get to the point that you are. But then you still have this other thing of like, all right, man up, like face the challenge head on, like be a man about it. And I find it really fascinating, and um, and it's something it's something I really really respect about you. Can you talk about how to balance those two like sure. inner opposing forces? See, that's the thing. I I think too many people look at it through the wrong through the wrong lens of that these are opposing forces, mm -hmm. right? In fact, if I want to do the self-work, the inner work, the deep work, yeah. I have to man up and face the demons. I have to man up and face my childhood molestation that happened to me. I have to man up 
and, and face the fact that racist people were telling me to go back to my own fucking country, you foreigner. I have to man up and face the fact that I was a horrible leader in 2013 and Fit Body Bootcamp franchise almost went out of business. I, I had to man up and have the most uncomfortable conversations with the people in my business who were a bad fit, but I didn't want to hurt their feelings. Hmm. And so I didn't know how to communicate with them. Mm. And so manning up isn't like this tough guy, bravado, macho thing. Man up is stop making excuses, take control of your situation, and rise to your potential. You see it in movies and TV shows, sitcoms all the time. It's like, hey bro, dude, man up and go after the girl of your dreams. Hey bro, man up and ask your, ask your boss for that raise that you deserve. And so, you know, there's a segment of the population that thinks it's a gender specific thing. They go, well, I want a woman up. Here's what man up means, human. Right? Mm -hmm. I believe as humans, we are top of the food chain. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. Like we're top of the food chain. Yeah. Yet I can go out in the parking lot here with the camera guys here and you, and we can look in people's cars and you're going to see burger wrappers. You're going to see empty soda cans. You're going to see a car that looks like a fucking dumpster. Mm -hmm. And the reason these cars look like that, because these people are living subpar. Mm -hmm. If you're human and you're top of the food chain, why are you living like a fucking animal? And if you've got a few pounds to lose, why don't you lose those to set a great example for your kids? If you're cheating on your spouse, why don't you stop cheating on your spouse so that you can set a great example for your kids mm -hmm. who are eventually gonna find out anyway, or, or you're not gonna feel like an imposter or a cheat. All those things are manning up because people go, yeah, but I was in a hurry so I couldn't wash my car, clean my car out. Yeah, I don't have time to work out. Man up, stop making excuses, take control of your situation, and rise to your potential as a human. Yeah, and yeah. so whether you're woman or man, rise to your potential. That's what Man Up is about. Yeah, and is, is this a lot of the kind of stuff that you go through in the book? Absolutely, and it's the six pillars of leadership that will help anybody kick ass in business and in life because, in fact, the very first pillar is about the inner work. It's mm. about self-discipline. Yeah. Become a self-disciplined human where you actually overcome the internal obstacles, the mental obstacles, discuss with a therapist if you have to. I talk about going to see a therapist in there, mm -hmm. right? Working with the therapist and going through the dark shit that I had to suppress for years. Right. Like you gotta first man up and do pillar number one, self-discipline, before you can communicate, get clarity of vision, build a strong team and, and all this, you know, decisiveness and all the other stuff I talk about in there. Right, so when you uh, were, were at that position and you were trying to you, you really figured out that, hey man, I, got, I just got a bunch of stuff in here that I, I really gotta get out. Um, how, how long did it take you before you actually took action on that and sat down and said, hey man, can you help me with some of this? Good question. In uh, 2013, when I, when I said I was a horrible leader and our Fit Body Bootcamp franchise was actually losing more money. It's funny, right? Because in 20, 2008, 2009, the economy crashes and I start building Fit Body Bootcamp with the intentions of making it this great franchise. And I go all in, I take all the financial risks but because I was an ineffective leader, as we grew the franchise and my leadership didn't grow, my leadership became the lid of my success, right? Like mm -hmm. I was kept butting up and hitting this glass ceiling. And so before you know it, the franchise is growing, my leadership abilities are not, I'm unable to lead a growing franchise. I was able to grow a small franchise. It started to implode on itself. And it wasn't until I started to really focus on building my, my inner skills. And so in 2013, well, I should say by now, by 2014, I have this massive anxiety attack, dude. Travis, it was so bad that I thought it was a heart attack. And I talk about it, and I call it, the, the, the chapter's called The Morning of My Heart Attack. And I'm 38 at the time, or 37, and I'm like, fuck, I die of a heart attack like this? Like, the fitness guy dies of a heart attack? Like, this is a- You're envisioning the headline. Right, yeah. right. I was like, this has gotta be a joke. And as it turns out, thankfully it wasn't a heart attack. 
I went to the doctor and he explained to me that you just had a massive panic attack. Ironically, I had a whole bunch more to follow. And it wasn't until I decided to man up mm. and because I felt like an imposter. Anxiety, I always hung out with my friend anxiety, right? I always, and I, when I got a therapist in 2015, so there was about a year and a half between the time I felt mm. the first anxiety attack yeah. and I got the therapist, about a year and a half. And the first thing the therapist teaches me, his name is Kevin. He goes, um, listen, you're getting, you're getting anxiety attacks because you're living in a state of anxiety all the time. I go, what does a state of anxiety look like? Yeah. Simple, anticipation of future pain. Hmm. So if we're always anticipating future pain, well, what was one of my anticipation of future pains? I had a business partner at Fit Body Bootcamp. He was a great human, a good guy, funny as hell, made me laugh, but horrible at running the business with me. <laughs> horrible, just awful. Like I felt like I was, we were not equally yoked. I was doing 80% of the work, he was doing 20 maybe, mm -hmm. right? And I'm being generous. Yeah. And so, but I He's liked the comic relief. Yes, but I liked him so much. I didn't know how to have the conversation with him. So the anticipation of future pain was, what is he going to do next to screw up the business? Right. Mm -hmm. I was kept anticipating future pain that he was going to deliver. It wasn't until manning up that I had to have the uncomfortable conversation with him, which I would have never had. Cause I'm a people pleaser. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hurt your feelings. Mm -hmm. But when I had that conversation, it was a sense of relief for him. And it was this, another layer of anxiety gone. And before you know it, one man up conversation at a time, I no longer deal with anxiety and I sleep well at night. Do you find that your ability to handle tough conversations directly affects your level of success? Absolutely. Your ability to communicate during the toughest, ugliest times is in direct correlation with success or failure. And do you feel like a lot of that came from your therapist sitting down with you and like walking you through mm -hmm. like, hey, this is what's happening, man. Like you, you're, you're obviously doing this, which is creating this. And then through that process, like, did you, do you, do you still see the same guy or did yeah. you? Okay. Yeah, it's, I, I went to him every Monday at 6 PM, uh, for 16 months. Now I see him about once a month for okay. a little checkup from the neck up, if you right. will. Right. right. A third party in my life who isn't necessarily invested in my life in a way that my wife and family right. and, you know, team members are. And so he'll give, give me this like objective view on yeah. things. What I love most is we would role play, dude. In that time, we would role play. I'd be like, well, listen, I don't think you understand. Me and my business partner, like our families are friends. Mm -hmm. And so what if I say, hey, we should part ways and then our families can't be friends. He goes, well, let's role play. I'll be him, you be you. And so we would role play and then we'd go the other way. He was me and I was him, mm -hmm. right? All of a sudden as we're role playing, he goes, you learn new tools. Right? It's funny that people see coaches or personal trainers, mm -hmm. you know, mentors for their business, coaches in athletics, personal trainers for their fat loss, yet we don't seek a therapist to deal with our innermost fucked upness yeah. and, and inability to communicate, yeah. right? Because mom and dad didn't teach us how to communicate and so we don't know how to communicate. A therapist will role play with you and all of a sudden, dude, I knew how to talk to my wife, mm -hmm. I knew how to talk to my employees, I knew how to talk to my business partner. And it made life so much easier when I've already role played it with someone, know the outcome, and I can come and have that conversation with you. Why do you think it took you so long in that year and a half time frame between like the first panic attack until you were like, all right, I gotta go check, I gotta get this checked out? Well, you know, working with a therapist is kind of has this negative connotation, doesn't that's it? What, yeah, that's what. Yeah, and that's exactly it. And mm -hmm. I was like, you know, it's a tough guy. Nothing's wrong right. with me. As right. it turns out, everything yeah. was wrong with me. As it turns out, everything's wrong with everyone. Because right. then I read a book called uh, The Body Keeps the Score. And that book, I forget the, the author's name, but if someone can Google it and find it, The Body Keeps the Score talks about one out of every four people 
have had sexual abuse in their life. Wow. And that causes a massive amount of trauma. One out of every three people have had some kind of physical, emotional, mental abuse. Hmm. Leaves the same amount of scarring trauma in your brain. Like when they do the CAT scan on the brain of people yeah. who have been raped or molested or physically beaten or emotionally abused, same part of the brain lights up. Wow. Well, that trauma creates lens. We see the world in a twisted fashion, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, for me, I didn't trust guys because I was molested by two older boys, right? I didn't trust guys. So imagine how our relationship would have been five years ago if you met me. Right. It would have been very different than it is today, where now all I want to do is, hey man, how can I help you? How can I serve you? Back then, I was a person of service, but like I was always like, watch out, what's Travis is gonna do? It's always you against everybody else. Yes, exactly. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. And so, yeah, there was a negative connotation, but the alternative was what? Keep having anxiety attacks, keep taking NyQuil and Vicodin to fall asleep at night. And actually have a heart attack maybe. And actually yeah. maybe have a heart attack by the time I'm 40. Mm -hmm. So I said, fuck it, man, I'm just gonna go see a therapist. And I didn't talk about it. Yeah. It wasn't until a year later that like, Sean Stevenson, Model Health Show, he's interviewing me mm -hmm. and I actually mentioned I go, Kevin, my therapist, and I felt okay with it, and I just started, blah, it just all came out. <laughs> and now I've become like this poster boy of entre tough guy entrepreneurs who can go see therapists. Yeah, 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 and how it's like totally fine and actually really good for you. Not a damn thing wrong with it, let me tell you. <laughs> oh, man, you said uh, you have a lot of living, limiting beliefs from the way that you grew up. Yeah. Um, just about, about what immigrants can do um, with money, about your mindset about money, about relationships with people. Yeah. Uh, how did you overcome those limiting beliefs and how important is it to replace those with positive, um, good beliefs? Good question. So I really did have a bad negative association with money. And that's because, you know, when you come to this country, you're a foreigner and you don't have much money. One of the things my dad always said, not in a negative way, but he's like, oh, ran out of money before we ran out of month, you yeah. know? And so it was one of those things where money was all of a sudden this uh, magical thing. That, Elusive right, spirit right, yeah, that, that comes and goes as it will. Yeah, yeah. Right. white collar people can get it, <laughs> blue collar people can't, right. immigrants don't have access to it. We tend to run out of money before we run out of month. And I had this, by the way, and it was, you know, we don't want to talk about money in our family because, well, we don't have it. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, as now as I hang out with very affluent people, Money is just a way of impact. Money is a vehicle to freedom. So look at how it's been reframed to me. Money is just a vehicle to freedom and experiences and impact. Did you did you view people with money in a negative connotation? No, I never I, I never viewed them in a negative connotation. I just viewed them as oh, okay because you're white collar and you were born here. I gave I gave I created an excuse hmm. which I had it manned up. So I yeah. created excuses instead of stop making excuses. It's like oh, okay, you're white collar and you were born here. You're American. That makes sense. I'm a foreigner, blue collar, not American, right? this is why I'm broke and you have money. Instead of, oh, you deliver a solution to many people who have a problem, yeah. I don't have that solution yet. And therefore I trade time for dollars. Yeah, how crippling is that for, for I mean. It's limiting, gosh, man. It's just so, even if you have big dreams and ambitions, like that is always going to be in the back of your head, right? Like, oh, well they just, they're successful because they were, they were born here. Right. The color of their skin, whatever it may be, the, the area they grew up in or their parents have this and that, and I, I just don't have any of that, so it's good for them that they're successful, it's good for them that they have money, I'll just never be that way. So how did you start tackling some of these? What was like the main practice that got you out of this? There was, no, I hate to break it, there was no main practice for me. Uh, thankfully, as a personal trainer, 
um, you know, when you have one-on-one -on -one personal training clients, they're paying $800 to $1,200 a month. It's usually affluent people who can afford this. Mm -hmm. And one of my personal training clients, his name is Jim Franco, a very crusty, curmudgeon older dude in his, in his <laughs> 60s while I was in my 20s. I was like, Jim, how do you come in here? I see you park like an Escalade out there, and then I saw you roll up the next day with the Mercedes. And then you come in here Monday, Wednesday, Friday, two in the afternoon when everyone else is working. Like, what do you do for a living? He goes, I'm a millionaire. I'm like, I know a millionaire? <laughs> it was like, all of a sudden, like, you're an alien. Like, it, he right. might as well have been from Mars, right? right? He's like, yeah, you know a millionaire. Probably a lot of your clients are millionaires or married to millionaires. I'm like, no way. He goes, yeah, how do you think we can afford you, right? <laughs> And uh, well, as it turns out, most of my money was going to the gym anyway. I was just getting an hourly pay. Oh, okay. The gym was making that kind of money. But, <laughs> but uh, so Jim Franco said, look, can I mentor you? And he, uh, yeah, sure. He goes, I'm going to bring you a cassette tape tomorrow and I want you to listen to it. It was the Tom Hopkins cassette tape. And it oh, taught me real estate sales, hmm. except I was a personal trainer. Yeah. So my limited mindset the next day, I was like, hey, Jim, this talks about real estate sales. I don't need this tape. I'm right. a personal trainer. He goes, you dummy, just <laughs> replace real estate with personal training. I'm like, oh, okay, right? Tom Hopkins leads to Brian Tracy. Brian Tracy to, to Zig Ziglar. Zig Ziglar to Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins to uh, 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 Maxwell Maltz, Psycho-Cybernetics. Amazing book. And before you know it, I'm learning you know, from Dan Kennedy and Gary Halbert. And Jim Franco is completely reframing how I see money. Like his, one of his lessons to me was take a little bit of money from a lot of people. I go, uh, like what? He goes, look, the gym charges $49 a month, yet I buy one month of personal training from you, <clears throat> you train me for the block of sessions, and then you put your sales hat on and you sell, sell me another month of training and you're awkward with it. Hmm. What if you could just start billing me on a monthly basis? I'm like, oh, no, no, no. My industry, the personal training industry, we don't do monthly billing like a gym does. He goes, another limiting belief. Yeah. Another limiting belief, right. right? So I went from fixed mindset to growth mindset, thanks to having a mentor. Yeah. So the number one thing that people can do to change their perspective and reframe the negative into a positive, get a mentor who's already living the life you want and just be open-minded, open-minded, growth-minded, and let the mentor start pouring into the empty vessel that you are. Which brings me perfectly into the networking conversation because that's exactly where I was hoping, like that, that's, that's what I was hoping you would say. <laughs> um, yeah, because, because I, I, I just personally believe that's true and we we're kind of talking a little bit um, uh, about this before we hit the, the record button on this, um, is that when you change your network you change everything about you. Everything. Like getting around those people, having somebody like that, like you didn't have access to that before, right? Mm -hmm. Like how, so how, how does somebody that was in your position get access to some of these people without doing what you did and, you know, moving to Beverly Hills and training? Sure. I mean, I think that's a valid way, but. <laughs> that, is, that is a valid way. But you know, keep in mind when I did this, there was no Instagram, there was no Facebook, there was no YouTube, there was no LinkedIn, right? right. And so thank God I chose the path of fitness and I chose the most expensive fitness service to offer, one-on-one -on -one personal training, mm -hmm. where I, by default, had mentors around me. Mm -hmm. But even then, I didn't even realize I had them until one of them, Jim Franco, was like, dude, can I mentor you? And oh, by the way, you probably have more mentors around you. Woke me up. And then he also put you on to virtual mentors. Yes. Like you're real mentor came in and was like here's this tape from this guy this guy this guy this guy this guy listen to it in your car free mentorship <laughs> that's it that's it and so today the, the, the bigger thing is this most people are hanging around with chickens and ducks so they're they're clucking and crow and and, and quacking yet they want to soar like an eagle mm -hmm. right so the first thing you got to do is cut out the negative toxic mediocre people from around you mm -hmm. and let me tell you a quick story about that 
Um, I was in Ketchikan, Alaska. The year was 2005. There was no way I would have made it there on my horsepower, my, my financial horsepower. Thank God that my wife's grandparents paid for this Alaskan cruise. We're walking, uh, the, the, the cruise ship parked somewhere, or tendered, whatever they call it, and we're walking in Ketchikan, Alaska. There's this older gentleman with a five gallon uh, paint bucket that's got water in it and like five or six crabs, and he's throwing out a net and casting mm -hmm. for crabs, crab fishing. And so as I'm walking by, I look in his bucket, and uh, it was pretty fascinating to me. Like, wow, this guy's actually getting his own food. Yeah. But as I'm looking at the crabs, this one little ambitious crab, Travis, is climbing on top of all the other crabs, and he's starting to reach for the brim of the bucket and trying to pull himself up. I didn't want the old man to lose his crab, so I'm like, excuse me, sir, you're about to lose one of your crabs. He's trying to make a getaway. He goes, don't worry, watch what happens next. As this little ambitious crab is trying to help its way out, all the other crabs down there reach up no and way. pull it back down. Wow. I'm hitting my wife like, do you fucking <laughs> see what's going on here? I've got crabs in my life. That was me and all my friends are those crabs down there, all the people in my life who say I can't do it, I don't deserve it, right. I'm not capable, I'm a foreigner. And I realized very quickly that before you step into a bigger network, you gotta cut the toxic chickens, mm -hmm. crabs, ducks out of your life if you wanna soar like an eagle, right? Yeah. Now here's the easy part. The hard part is cutting those people out of your life, which mm -hmm. I did. Mm -hmm. I was willing, you, you remember, the entrepreneur who wants to make the biggest money and the biggest impact on this planet has to take the biggest risk and do the scariest things. Yeah. And cutting away your high school friends or elementary school friends or family members that are toxic mm -hmm. is a scary, high-risk thing to do. Right. But you gotta be willing to live in the extremes and do that. Mm -hmm. And so I was willing to do that. The other thing is, where I was a personal trainer and there was no social media for me to be around affluent people. Mm -hmm. Dude, now you can go on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and follow the most badass, optimistic, positive, game-changing entrepreneurs or thought leaders or athletes, whatever it is you wanna become, mm -hmm. they become your virtual network. Um, in the book, Think and Grow Rich, he talks about his virtual mastermind of people like he thought about okay right, well right. what would henry ford do if he was in my position henry ford was dead but there's enough books about henry ford where we can learn how he made decisions right, right? at least and a pattern that you can yes follow, right? exactly so look these days people can follow andy frisilla ed mylett gary vaynerchuk the rock you you, you name it right mm -hmm. and when you're doing that they become your mentors now to me that's not good enough mm -hmm. the next step is proximity is power yes get around them Proximity is power, and then environmental exposure is king. And so, shorten the proximity. Instead of being on the other side of your phone or screen, if they're having an event, a workshop, a mentorship, a, a, a seminar, get there. Mm -hmm. Find a way to get there. Even if you're gonna take the Greyhound bus to stay at the Motel 6, get there, shake their hand, proximity is power. Because yeah. when Jim Franco was like, I'm a millionaire, and all of a sudden I realized I've been touching and training and working with a millionaire, yeah. it changed the way I work, it changed the way I think. So, and of course, proximity is power because when you shake their hands and you go, hey, look, you're one of my mentors that I've been following on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, they go, listen, what are you trying to achieve in life? You go X, Y, and Z. And if their network has the ability to help you, mm -hmm. they'll connect you to people in their network. Right. Proximity right. is power and then environmental exposure, being around them over and over again, you begin to pick up their habits. Right. 
I found myself speaking like Jim Franco, walking like Jim Franco. It sounds crazy and sinister, mm -hmm. but I wanted to pick up as many millionaire habits as possible and do away with blue collar. And I know people are gonna go, nothing wrong with blue collar. Listen, nothing wrong with blue collar, but become white collar, make more fucking money. When we have 100 years on this planet, make more money and make a bigger impact on the people that you're trying to serve. But do away with the negative toxic people and get within proximity and frequency of the people that you want to be like. Yeah, and frequency, that's a big thing. Yeah. 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 Instead of just like, oh, I met him once and we took a picture. <laughs> like, okay. And then you went back home to your same friends by your high school and went out drinking on the weekends. Right. After you met him at the conference, you went right. back and did all the same things. Because you're probably drinking once a week with your friends, right. but you saw this cat who can change your life once. Right. Because exactly. You just told me, I hope you don't mind me sharing this, you just told me that. You've got like a like a small army of sales reps who go door to door. Like you've cut your teeth in the entrepreneurial world by going doing door to door sales. Mm -hmm. Like that is one of the toughest ways to make money, and you've done that at such a young age. Well, guess what? If I want to learn door to door sales, breaking bread with you once and asking you how you did it is not enough. Yeah. For a whole year, I want to hang out with you as much as I can, hours and weeks on end, to learn your mannerisms. I want to go to many doors as possible and watch you speak. I want to see you deal with an objection, a rejection, a condition, and then see how you react. Right. And then maybe at the end of the year, I've now become as good as you and, and the army that you run. Mm -hmm. But one contact with you is not enough. Right. And then once you get to that point, then you go find somebody that's better than me. Right. And you and you that, that I think that's that's kind of where a lot of people miss the boat too is that they find one person and they get up to that person's level and that's it. And it's just like, oh, I'm wondering why I'm stuck. Well, yeah. how, what did you do? What did you do to get to there the, the exactly. first place? You got around somebody that was on a different level than you are. So now you got to go find another person that's on a different level than you are again, yeah. and just repeat the same process mm -hmm. over and over again. The ladder has many rungs. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So, gotta ask you this. It's a question I ask every single guest that comes on the show: Who you know or what you know? Which one's more important, and why? Uh, truthfully, who I know is more important uh, because the things I don't know. I can get from who I know. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's, that has always been, uh, it's funny, I, I've asked this question to over 150 people now on, on the show, the, the Grant Cardones and Jack Canfields and a lot of these people um, that are you know, kind of in this same circle. And um, it, when I first formed the question for the show, I thought it was just like a layup question, like a toss, and then you knock it out of the park, say right. who, and then we're both on the same page, we talk about networking for like an hour, but like that's not how it happened. What, what percentage of people yeah. go with the route of what you know? Uh, probably about probably about twenty percent, but there's a large percent that always say both. They try to get away with saying both. I always make people at the beginning. I would let people do whatever they wanted, yeah. but now I'm like, no, no, no. feet to the choose. fire. You got to pick one. Like you can only work on one yeah. for the next five years. Which of the two are you going to focus on? And it seems to always come back to the who. And the illustration that I give is. Imagine that you go to an amusement park with your buddies. We're, cl we're close to Santa Clarita, so you're going to Six Flags in Valencia, right, with your buddies? Yep. And, um, and let's say they go in line, but you have to go to the bathroom, and then you grab a hot dog and a drink, and you eat, and then you come back to the line, and there are 50 people ahead. This is what I think networking is, is the ability to, when you look up in that line, they're up there, and they say, hey, Bedros, we're up here. Come, come up here us. with us, right? Yeah. Come up here with us. So you're still walking the same steps. Like you have to walk those same steps. You don't just get to like transport there, but you're going way faster than everybody else, right? Because the people that you know have already been in those same exact yeah, steps. They have to go inches, as, exactly. you get to go yards. Right, right, exactly. So it will always shortcut 
the road that. to like knowing more things, having more knowledge, and just getting around yeah. those right people. You know, in Napoleon Hill's book, again going back to Think and Grow Rich, uh, he talks about a scene, and I might slaughter this, but the point will come across. Henry Ford is on trial, mm -hmm. and he's on trial because, I, I forget why, but basically they were trying to erode his credibility. Mm -hmm. How can you create vehicles? How can you create the assembly line? You're not an engineer. Mm -hmm. You're not a mechanic. You don't know how to paint vehicles. You don't know anything about tires and wheels and engines. How can you create, do this? You, you don't, you're not an entrepreneur. How do you run a business? Right. How do you pay people? And they were trying to erode his credibility. And Henry Ford very calmly said, young man, to the attorney, young man, I'm not an accountant. I'm not an engineer. I'm not an architect. I'm not a mechanic. I certainly don't know how to paint. But on my desk is a box. And this box has buttons. And at a push of any button, I can summon the engineer, the accountant, the attorney, and the mechanic. It's who you know. Right. He knew the right people who can create the assembly line in the business for him, mm -hmm. yep. not what you know. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Man, uh, Badger, I'm sure there's, there's so much more. I mean, I, I usually take a bunch of notes and I have a lot of different things I like to get, but uh, I think we had a, a great conversation. We are coming down here to the end. Um, so there is this last thing I like to call the random round, just a few really quick random questions with sure. some quick random answers. You ready? What profession, other than your own, do you think it'd be fun to attempt? Ooh, I would love to be a bartender. If you could sit on a park bench with someone, past or present, and talk to them for an hour, who'd it be and why? Oprah Winfrey, because she has gone through so much shit and has achieved such a high level of success and impact. How do you like to consume content? Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, videos? Audiobooks first, videos second, physical books third. Besides the books we've talked about um, in this particular interview, what would be another one that you would recommend either to read or to listen on audio? The number one book I would recommend is Napoleon Hill's, should have been his best-selling book, but it wasn't because his uh, family didn't put it out until after he died, which is Outwitting the Devil. Hmm. It's a far better book than the book that we know of his, which is uh, Think, and Grow Rich. Think and Grow Rich. And the second book would be Maxwell Maltz's uh, Psycho-Cybernetic. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. Morning routine, very simple. Wake up between 5 and 5.30 in the morning. Uh, shower, protein shake, big glass of water, coffee, play with my dog Cookie, go through my gratitude exercises, three people I am grateful for in my life, and then I text them and tell them how grateful I am for them that morning. And then three things that I'm grateful for in my life. By this point, an hour has gone by since I've woken up, so it's around 6.30, maybe 7 in the morning. I sit on the couch and I go through my magic time two hours of magic time. I make a list the night before the things that I have to dominate that mm -hmm. are within my 5%, the 5% of the things that move the money needle. Uh, I make the list the night before, I dominate that between seven and 9 a.m. on the couch, uh, laptop, videos, whatever I have to do, posts, email broadcasts, mm -hmm. sales calls, etc. And then at 9 a.m. I head to the gym and then get here by about 10, 30, 11, take a shower, take a meeting, and then of course you and I met here at 12 noon Got because it. of that. My day starts at 12 noon at the office. What is your go-to pump-up song? <laughs> uh, my go-to pump-up song actually is uh, Roar uh, by yes. Katy Perry. Katy Perry yes. Yeah, and that's because my daughter sang that at my Big Live Event Fitness Business Summit a couple years ago. Awesome. I love it. What is something that you are just not very good at? Oh my God, what I'm not very good at is reading a book out loud. And mm. Travis, I share this with you because tomorrow I have to go read this damn book out loud <laughs> in a booth to record the audio for Audible. 
And uh, <laughs> better just memorize the whole thing. Man, the good news is I, I worked in it with my publisher because I heard Gary Vaynerchuk talk about this, that he said he's a horrible reader. Mm. And so he says, basically, the audiobook is a way different book than the physical book. Mm. So I told my publisher, look, I'm going to go on a rant. Yeah. All six pillars that's in the book will be in, in the audio, but it's probably going to be a longer, better version. Yeah. And so he agreed. And so, uh, but, awesome. but I'm still nervous as shit. Yeah. That, that is... Um... That, that's why I asked like the audio versus thing because because I, I definitely find that some books are for sure better on audio yeah. and some books are for sure better to read. So. This one's going to be for sure better on audio. Okay. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Well, cool. As we get everything wrapped up here, what is one place online where we will be able to find you the most? Oh, best place to find me is Instagram. I'm just fascinated with Instagram right now, even though I'm brand new to it. Um, Instagram.com forward slash Pedros or on my uh, website, manup.com. Perfect. Awesome. Pedros, thank you so much for coming to the show today, brother. I had a fantastic time chatting with you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity, man. Of course. Well, that's it for this episode of World Class. World Class is hosted by me, Travis Chappell, and produced by Eric Skorzynski. It is a world-class media production. At World Class Media, we produce top-rated podcasts for seven- to nine-figure entrepreneurs, executives, real estate investors, and content creators. So if you want your own show, you have the budget to create one, but you just don't have the time or the team to figure it out, then go to travischapel.com slash makemypodcast. That's travischapel, C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L.com slash makemypodcast. And let's chat to see if we'd be a good fit to work together. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, peace out and stay world-class. Thank you.